Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Mark Kenny here with a special Democracy Sausage podcast featuring the award-winning journalist Annika Smithhurst. I spoke with her recently in the ANU studio about the day she answered a knock on her door thinking it was a carpet cleaner, only to find it was the AFP. What followed changed her life and shook her confidence in journalism. She's now been assured that she won't face prosecution or five years in jail. But the case again highlights the lack of protection for whistleblowers acting in good conscience and journalists reporting what people need to know. There is a clear need for reform here, as I think the discussion over the next hour demonstrates. Hello, I'm Mark Kenny, host of ANU's Democracy Sausage podcast, and welcome to this Canberra Times ANU Meet the Author event. Now, while this event is sadly being held under COVID-19 remote conditions, with which we're also regrettably familiar these days, can I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging? Can I also acknowledge and thank Emeritus Fellow Colin Steele, who is founder and chair of the Meet the Author series, which he established way back in 1986 at the Australian National University. In partnership with the Canberra Times, the series has captivated the Canberra community for over three decades, drawing some of the biggest names in literature, history and current affairs. Tonight, I'm delighted to be getting to know more personally one of Australia's better-known public journalists, the latter-day defender of a free and open press, Annika Smethurst. Unless you've been living under a rock in recent months, you'll know Annika for reasons that I'm sure she would rather you didn't. She'd rather these events hadn't happened. Annika is the author of the latest addition to the much-enjoyed Little Book's Big Ideas on series with her contribution on Secrets. She is national political editor of News Corp's Sunday publications like the Herald Sun and the Sunday Telly. She's also a double Walkley Award winner and has two Melbourne Quill Awards for political reporting. But none of that prepared her for the events of June 4, 2019. Annika Smethurst, welcome to ANU and congratulations on this book, which I have to say actually had my heart rate elevated as I was reading it. Partly in sort of professional empathy, I guess, but also just because it's a ripping good yarn and you tell it so well. Can I kick off then 
um, having welcomed you, with uh, by inviting you really to set the scene of what happened on that day um, and how, why you were so ill prepared for it, I suppose. I sort of see it as in, in my life as sort of like a, um, a watershed moment, a very sort of ADBC sort of thing, um, you know, AR after raid and before raid. Um, I was so innocent to the idea of so much before then. And as you know, if you make it to the Canberra Press Gallery, you're usually not that naive or innocent. You know, I'd, I'd done some pretty hard-hitting stories and had some pretty terse conversations with politicians, but nothing prepared me for that day. Um, I was, I'd, I'd written the story a year before, so even mentally I wasn't even in the mindset to be thinking that this would come up and bite me. I'd just been on the election campaign, as you know, they're sort of a, a mad period and you're not home. And then I'd done some media. So I really hadn't spent much time in my apartment. And I'd come home one morning um, because I had to meet a carpet cleaner. Yes, I was going to say, this is the <laughs> mysterious Phil that you were going to meet. Uh, yes, who I never have actually come across since. And if Does he, Phil actually exist? He does. Yeah. He came to my house once and the police were there and I just said, you need to go, the police are here. <laughs> uh, and I really, I did plan to get back in touch with him and say, so sorry for the drama and then, you know, I'm not a criminal. I think he thought I must have murdered someone in there or something. And I well, just you, want... <laughs> you were having him around to get a very suspicious stain. A red wine a... stain. Well, you say it was red wine, but I, I mean, know. Phil may have another view. He well, gets around there and there's I, cops everywhere. I'm certain he thinks I'm a murderer. So if anyone knows <laughs> Phil, the carpet cleaner from Canberra, I please let him know I'm terribly sorry. But I, I was there to meet him. And like most things in my life, I sort of wake up in the morning and check my phone and what have I got today? And I live off a sort of Google calendar because I'm quite a busy person. And that morning it was like, oh, God, the carpet cleaner's coming. So I, I, I was there for about 10 minutes. Um, I'd popped out, come back home, and within 10 minutes of being home, the police were there. And that might not sound, uh, I guess the backstory to that, it sounds boring, but to me that was a sign that they were watching me or, or reading the text between me and Phil or, you know, had some sort of operation to know that I was at home because... Either that or they'd popped over it was sort of every couple of days for the prior six weeks and I hadn't been home, which was also a possibility. But they seemed very um, sure that I would be home that day. Uh, and that, that really upset me more than I thought I would because it meant that I'd been living this innocent sort of life where I chatted to people on my telephone and text people and organised things and drove around Canberra, not realising that I was probably being surveilled. So. Yeah, so this is a, you're living very close to uh, Parliament House, about two kilometres away from Parliament House. Uh, you're a busy journalist. You've written a story a long time before that. And and then, and as you say, you're home this day relatively for a relatively short period of time. You're expecting to meet this guy, Phil, to help you sort out this problem with the red wine on the carpet. And you get a knock on the door and you think, that's him. Hmm. I didn't even look. I've got a peephole. And usually I'd look uh, through it. I was a, you know, living alone as a uh, female and I, I usually would always check the peephole, but I didn't because in my mind it was the cleaner. So uh, when I opened the door, there was five plain clothed, clothed police officers there. Uh, once they knew I was home, which I believe they did anyway, they called for two other IT experts. And as you know, the AFP officers aren't very far away from my house, so it didn't take them too long to come over. And by that stage, I had seven police in my very modest apartment. And there ensued a whole day, really, of those people being there. And it led yeah. to a whole lot of very strange things. Can I just read um, a, a few of, of, and I'll do this a few times through our conversation, just because there are things in, in your excellent little book that, um, 
uh, you know, really struck me that I wanted to ask you about. Um, this is uh, what you write about how you were responding to those police officers in, in that moment or in those moments after they came in and obviously showed you the warrant and so forth. You say, shock has erased the first few words they said to me. Since that day, I've wondered why I wasn't bolshier or less cooperative. I'm a journalist. It's in our nature. After all, this was my home and I'm not a criminal. I invited them in, thought they'd ask a few questions and be off. So you, you sort of start explaining it to yourself. Uh, you're trying to give, give some rationale to what seemed like a, a, a completely bizarre situation. And so you thought, all right, well, That's you know. Exactly right. Yeah. You know, you, you think you've done nothing wrong and you can just talk your way out of it. Or I, if I had have known where it would be now, you know, I definitely would have acted differently. But I'd, I'd never had any interaction with the police before. Um, I'm a, I'm a goody two-shoes in many respects. I always was growing up. I was a nerd at school. So to me it was if I'm polite and courteous, they could be gone within the hour. I, at one stage I thought, you know, well, I'll be back at work by 11. They'd come over just before 9 and... I might mention this to someone in the tea room, but it's not going to be anything. It, it won't define my life and how wrong I was. <laughs> mm, yes. Well, I'm, I'm interested in this. Just stay with this just for a moment because, I mean, you've written it, so it obviously means something to you, this question about why you were behaving as you were behaving. And I think for the right reasons you were doing that, quite frankly. But the, the, the sort of counterfactual is if you had gone the other way and you'd been difficult to deal with, that wouldn't have made it. That wouldn't have made them go away anyway. It wouldn't have changed yeah. anything except made it less pleasant. It might have actually made it worse. But yeah. I think um, I'm shocked at how much I guess I didn't defend myself. Uh, as you say, it might not have helped uh, me <laughs> legally <laughs> if I had have sort of blocked them from the door or jumped out the window or you know, flushed my phone down the toilet. But I just, I really believed that if I was amicable, I might get some sort of... Um, not leniency, but it's a natural human. Ex- yeah, back. it's an expectation that you're, you know, you're not yeah. a criminal, and uh, and maybe we'd come to an arrangement as adults, civil adults. And I sort of talk about Laurie Oakes having a conversation in the book with a police officer at one stage, and I had been told these stories about police ringing up and saying, you know, where, who'd you talk to? Where'd you get the documents? And hmm. they did their work, and I did mine, and then we all moved on. And look, I, I will make it clear, I don't have anything against most of the police that were there that day. I thought a lot of them probably felt uncomfortable, uh, not all of them, but some of them I don't think went into the police force to be raiding journalists' homes and didn't feel comfortable going through my personal possessions. That I'm not excusing it, but they were doing their job. Yeah, much like you were suddenly in trouble doing, for doing, doing yours. Doing my job, Which yes. we'll come back to. <laughs> so they ended up staying there all day, mm. right? And, um, and, 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 it, and there was a number of... You described this in, in some detail in the book, and it's quite interesting um, uh, the way you both sort of analyse your own behaviour, but also it kind of it borders on the comical in, in places. Yeah. At one stage, for example, you're sitting around your dining room table, which is, uh, explain that scene, you've been doing some quilt work or something? Yeah, I have some hobbies and one of them is quilting and I had sort of cut out floral squares, liberty print squares for a few of my friends were having babies and they were going through them and carefully, thankfully, putting them back in the same order of what I'd designed and it just seems so absurd. You imagine police raids are in these sort of drug den houses with like lights on and hydroponics or something like this. And they were going through my cookbooks and asking me about recipes and also going through my sewing drawers. And it, 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 if anything could prove that I wasn't a criminal, I thought it was those sort of 
very wholesome things that were perhaps going on and weighing that with what was I was reading on the warrant and the sort of allegations because it was in the news by now. You know, it was there was police, there was cameras outside my house. It was live on the ABC. At one stage, we had the television on and they were sort of accusing me of national security breaches and mm. putting lives at risk effectively. And, and this was being juxtaposed with them going through quite a wholesome apartment, I would have thought. And it just... I got I, I all day I went between thinking this is absurd to being terrified. Just being at one terrified. stage, you describe how you're sitting. I think on is it on the kitchen bench with your legs crossed, uh, sort of in a sense trying to be there but be out of the way at the same time. Yeah. As this process is going on. At one stage, my lawyers suggested perhaps I could leave the house because some sort of thought that maybe they won't be able to question me. Not that they could there, and or maybe you know it was better that I was out of the house. Uh, there was cameras on my lawn, so I said, I'm not going to run the gauntlet because where do I go? I go to my mm. car, I'm going to be filmed, it's going to look like I'm running away. Plus, I felt like I was giving up some sort of control by not watching them go through everything. But by watching it, it was so terrifying. Every room they went in, I'd think, oh, what's in there and what's on my phone? And, and it was, I felt really stuck. And It's a horrible reversal in a way because normally when we face a situation that we find unacceptable that we, we can't tolerate or need to be away from, home is where we go. This and, was in your home. You, yeah. it, it sort of reversed that I think situation. That's something you. I felt really angry about. Uh, up until then, I didn't have a huge profile, but I did work in a sort of, you know, a, an area where you're questioning the Prime Minister or, you know, you do some TV and things like this, and it can be quite combative and mm. stressful. And I did feel that my home, it was a rented apartment. I'd lived there for five years, but it was the first place I'd lived alone. I'd always had housemates in Melbourne and I really felt like a sanctuary for me and it was taken away within hours that I ever wanted to spend any time there again. And it's, it's interesting, this the, the subject matter, because uh, this is a story you've written a year before. At that stage, uh, you know, initially... Are they asking you questions about the story? Are they they mentioned the story presumably, and they had a printed copy of it in right. colour. <laughs> they had that next to the warrant, just in case I wasn't aware of why they were there. They handed me a copy of the story and um, made and, it. And did they ask you questions about it at that stage? A few times, yes. Right. Um, I eventually got some lawyers to my house, and um, I was advised not to say much, but they did try, mm. uh, and I sort of. I write about it in the book that a few times some of the police started, there was clearly a hierarchy of police there. Um, a few times they, different police officers would chat to me and it, often it was small talk. They're going through my cookbooks and they're asking what my favourite recipe is or they see I have a, a Collingwood membership on my coffee table so they discuss football with me. And sometimes I thought it was because they felt as uncomfortable as I did. Here's, you know, a big, tall police officer going through my house and I think they didn't feel comfortable and then I also felt no the reason they're doing this is like a journalist would do they're trying to warm me up to ask me questions you know they're trying to get me on side so I'd go from chatting to them to going no no I don't have to talk to you no comment I'm not talking to you and I, I still won't know you know what their motive was and I guess I think every officer in that house had a different feeling towards that but there was a few times they did try to ask me a few questions and I just I, I didn't have words back well, I don't know about you, but I, um, as a journalist, would sometimes struggle to remember the details of stories. I mean, obviously... A year the, prior. The, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes the one I wrote yesterday. Um, yeah. 
I can remember having conversations when you'd written more than one story in the day and you go to tell someone about it and you can't remember what the middle one was. You know, you might have t- turned out a number of them. Yeah. Um, but being asked to recall details, even though you may not in- be intending to answer those questions, but you are desperate, obviously, to reassure yourself in the, in the thinking process that, mm. you know, that you're okay. Um, and uh, that, that would have been quite daunting. Um, and... But it, it it did lead these dynamics did lead to at one stage you even scrounging up some some food. It's absurd. <laughs> well, not really. I mean, it, it, I think it goes to the point that the, the you're all people. I mean, these are people doing their jobs, and they'd got there before nine o'clock, and as it was a June day, it was freezing. Uh, it was dark by the time they left. Almost, it was getting very close to sort of five o'clock, and it, it was pitch black nearly. So, um, we were. We hadn't eaten all day, anybody in the house, and it was freezing. And at one stage I thought, well, at least for my lawyers that had done an amazing job, these two wonderful Canberra lawyers that came over, um, my workplace had organised, and I just thought, maybe I should see if I've got any food. And I'd been on the election campaign, so I put out some skanky old peanuts and almonds and put them in bowls and said, does anybody want something? Which, again, I was like, why am I feeding these people in my house? But it's such an absurd situation that there's no precedent for it. Um, Again, I thought being amicable might help and it's in my nature to be nice to police. I've never been encouraged not to be. Uh, it did change my trust, I think, henceforth, <laughs> dealing with authorities. Though. It wasn't your first run-in with the police, though, was it? I mean, you had a, uh, a, 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 a you know an intersection with the law when you were much younger. I wouldn't I, say that. I, <laughs> I'm only raising this because you've actually written about it in the book, but uh, just explain what I'm talking about. <laughs> to show how little interaction with the police I'd have, I'd write about being having a few too many drinks at a friend's 21st a few years prior and thinking it was funny like a lot of people at 21sts with a friend to uh, steal a big tin of uh, beetroot which was at the venue my friend was having her 21st and my mother got wind of this and wanted to scare me so she rang a local prosecutor she knew to ring me the next morning to you know scare me away from a life of crime which apparently hadn't worked so yes so so you then, as you say, the story's starting to uh, run outside. You've been allowed to make some calls to um, try and tell the people you need to tell. Yeah. When you finally get on to one of your editors, uh, you say that the police are in your apartment and she responds before you've even told her what it's about. She, she responds to you, is this about the story you wrote about Australian Signals Directorate? Look, Mark, I think you'd know, as we were saying, you can write a lot of stories in a day as a journalist, but some of them, you know, make an impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I wrote that story a year prior, uh, it was referred to the police shortly after. I hadn't realised they were still investigating it a year later. Uh, We hadn't been updated on that or informed um, in any way. So I guess I was surprised they were there, but I, I wasn't surprised in the sense that I knew it had caused a controversy. I knew the police had... Uh, it had been referred to the police, both by the government and at the will of Labor. And I had, I hadn't expected the police to rock up, but I, there wasn't another story in the previous year that I thought that they were there for. Right. So, so that didn't alarm you that your editor kind of tricked or tripped to that. Uh... <laughs> I was surprised they remembered, as you know, newsrooms are busy places. But um, it was a quite a big story at the time. And so you're aware at that point then. Um, so. That, you know that, that they organise. She organises for News Corp's lawyers to 
handle the situation. They organised for some local lawyers to come over to your place and immediately start providing you with Yes, and with, I must admit, the first young lawyer that got there, and she was, I say young, not with any disrespect, but I believe she was a few years younger than me. Well, she looked at it anyway, and I said to her, oh, thank you so much for coming. You know, what's your area of expertise? And she, I think she looked at me, I, I think I may be verbaling her, and she said, commercial litigation. And I just went, <laughs> okay, well, you might know more than me. And look, I, it was just too support two people who were supportive I had in the house. Like I spoke to my editors throughout the day and they offered to send some colleagues around and, and, and I had friends that offered to come around. But as I said, I had cameras out the front and I didn't. I know as a journalist what, if you're sitting outside and nothing happens all day, providing colour does. If, if any of my friends had have come over and had to walk that gauntlet, they would have been on the news that night and I didn't want to put anyone through that. So two strange lawyers that I'd never met who ended up becoming, you know, the most supportive people I'd ever met uh, were there all day to provide advice. And so at what point do they start going through your phone? Is that uh, straight away or is that does that happen a bit later? <laughs> they, the search started in my room and, and to their credit, they did at least send two female police officers to search my room. I assume through, it wasn't random, I assume that was through some sort of um, sensitivity uh, the two police that came to my house a bit later were the IT professionals and they informed me that um, I would have to hand over my phone, that the warrant covered that. I've learnt that you need a different warrant to access PIN codes and things like that. Um, so they came over a little bit later and, and they did a search of my house. They found an old laptop under my bed, which honestly I hadn't used for a few years. They went through that, an iPad. Um, they didn't need the password? Uh, they asked for it and I had to give it. Oh, you actually had the password for an old laptop. That's quite, you are quite organised, aren't you? Well, I guess, again, in hindsight, maybe I could have pretended I'd forgotten. It wouldn't have been out of the realms of possibility. But, you know, I'm an honest person and I didn't want to get myself in any more trouble, I guess. And how how did you deal with that? I mean, as a journalist, how did you deal with them going through your electronic devices? Because you do write about this in the book. You mentioned at that point that you're a millennial. I'm, I'm interested to probe why you, uh, why you raised that point about being a millennial and, 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 and you know, the, the sort of status of your iPhone? I guess my whole life is on there. As I said before, my whole calendar is on there. So people I meet with, I'm not, I'm not silly enough to put in sensitive contacts. I'm a journalist. I do understand some things about sensitivity around these issues, but even dentist appointments, you know, for the past 10 years of my life, effectively, because I've always had an iPhone and they've just sort of updated on top of one another. So um, I had 20,000 photos in my phone. I sound like an idiot, but this is, you know, accumulated over almost a decade, um, which is really uh, my whole life hmm. really was on that phone. Notes, shopping lists, you name it, banking, everything. Um, and it wasn't just my privacy, which I felt upset about because I guess I had done something which prompted this, but it was the people that trusted me. And if it's a friend texting me through a breakup or, you know, yeah. um, somebody getting in contact through terrible grief or a politician trusting me to text me, um, I felt like I had let contacts, friends, family down through their life now being exposed. Yes, well, I remember in a case I was involved in the hockey versus Fairfax media case, a, a big defamation case in the federal court. And I remember early on having a conversation uh, with our lawyers and I checked a detail on my phone 
uh, one of one of the council said to me that is they were our council it was a it was a private meeting but he said to me um, sorry you've got that on your phone and I said yes and he said uh, and they, they looked at each other and they said that's all going to be discoverable can we, mm. discoverable can we have your phone and I handed over the phone and for the next half an hour they sat there feverishly noting every bit of the exchange that I had had with my editors with mm. other journalists uh, with other people um, that was bad enough, but the fact that it was discoverable, uh, they knew that, and so they basically uh, had to uh, you know, be ready to hand it over. It's horrendous. And you, you know, you're warned, the, you know, don't the, put things in text, but it's practical. Yeah, but these are things that people say to you. Yes. I mean, a, yeah. as it happened, subsequently, a number of those texts um, in, in, or that text exchange mm. made the basis of, uh, you know, the defamation complaint. Yeah. They, they, they were trying to establish malice on the basis of those text messages, um, not not only that I sent that I can I, I mm. hasten to add, um, but uh, yes, it's it's an extraordinary feeling as a journalist because you've had private conversations, which is, you know, part of the currency of the job. It has to happen Absolutely. that way, uh, and as you say, yeah. a, a number of people are just going to have that laid out in public. And I think as a journalist, you know how things will play out in the media. So I was sort of preempting this and thinking, okay, well, should we get to the stage where I'm prosecuted or if this, if these text messages come out, how it could be, how I could be perceived as a person and how incorrect that might seem. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever met a human who could say that they haven't said something a bit nasty or cheeky or um whatever in a in a text message Mm. uh it it doesn't isn't the sum of all of us but i quickly thought i'm going to be defined by a few text messages for the rest of my life um and whether that's you know me being bitchy or funny or you know having a joke or or just exposing how i speak to politicians it it is an insight which the person I'm exchanging the text with didn't agree to and I'm going to let them down. And um, they, they took friend, text from friends, high school friends, who one of them had texted me to congratulate me on the story the day it came out and they used sort of a timestamp to take the text messages yeah. within a few weeks of it, of the story. And I just thought it, it, it wasn't even relevant, but I just thought I'd let her down by the language she had used and the language I'd used back, it was how we speak to each other. It was our personal relationship. She's a, I've known her for 30 years and I felt like I would let her down by that potentially being read out in court, even though it wasn't controversial. Mm. And journalism is, as we know, newsrooms are fairly robust places. There's a certain, there's a certain uh, sort of uh, roughness to the discourse, which is associated with, I, I guess, letting off steam and and the, the camaraderie that exists in, in those places, as well as the intense competition. Some of that doesn't look good if, it, uh, if it's taken out of context, if people don't understand that, that culture. Um, let's talk about the history of Australia's secrecy laws, um, because you do cover off this in the, in the book. You know, they, 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 these laws that we're talking about here, that, uh, that the warrant makes the claim that you have breached, uh, date back to the First World War. Yeah, and I got asked recently on Q&A whether, you know, why I thought I was above the law. And I think about this often because I don't. I think the laws are outdated and, you know, I've been cleared now. There is no, um, they've said I won't be prosecuted for anything relating to this story. 
Um, the police, on the other hand, you know, trespassed on my property. So I, I stand by the fact they think they, their actions suggest they were more above the law than perhaps um, I did. But it's about, Good point. it's about the law not being relevant anymore. And as we know, we observe lawmakers, laws do need to be updated and amended uh, with technology, with advancements, and also just with common sense. We live in a different time. As you say, these laws were, um, uh, they date from a different era when we were worried about sort of espionage during world wars, uh, about Germany. Uh, and and the way we received information then was different too. The way the law is designed is just by receiving information, not even if you actively asked for it, but if I, you get an email from somebody at ASIO that gives any information that you know is classified, you're now in trouble just by receiving that. Now, I think that's a very interesting sort of quirk because I don't think that's how the law is intended to work, um, let alone the, the lack of safeguards for journalists. So I think it, it did expose a huge gap in the law and I think many journalists had known about this for a long time and had as more national security laws were introduced post-September 11 and amendments were, were made. There was also, alarm was always raised to these, but I guess we had no, no example of how they could affect the work we do. Yes, and the warrant said that you'd breached this law because this is the, uh, the Section 70 and 79 of the Crimes Act. Um, you'd breached this law because you'd communicated a document or article to a person that was not in the interest of the Commonwealth, which I guess that interest question is quite interesting for a journalist because yes. we would argue, and I would certainly very happily strongly argue in, 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 in the case of the story you wrote, uh, and I'm sure you would as well, that there was a keen public interest, a very clear public interest mm. in uh, understanding the discussions that were going on, that were going to, at least if they, uh, if they transpired in one direction, could significantly increase the surveillance powers of a federal agency with implications for Australians. And That's in the Australian interest to know. I would have thought so. And should they have got to that stage, it would have had to been passed in one of the Houses of Parliament. So it would have been public. So the idea that this was exposing Australians to something they weren't going to know is a bit absurd when they would have. I just, I guess I informed everybody a little bit ahead of time than the government had thought. But yeah, I think the idea that, and to be fair, the, the warrant they used, it was found that they weren't clear enough in, in sort of saying which laws they thought I'd breached. So it was broad. Um, obviously, the High Court decided it didn't sort of cover specifically enough what they thought I'd done. But um, I think it shows that perhaps we need to update some of those secrecy laws. And, and you yourself, as you were trying to take this on board and dealing with all this, this circumstance, how hard was it to actually understand what it was they were saying, what it was that was said on this document? <laughs> I was handed the warrant and I had never really read warrants. I didn't do a lot of court reporting. I'd seen a few. Uh, I could see myself shaking. It was something I was trying to hide from the police, but that adrenaline rush that you see people get where your your hand is quivering and therefore the paper's quivering. So I had to put it down because I really didn't want to give away, I guess, how terrified I was. Um, but when you see sort of national security laws mentioned and your name there, and I asked my lawyers very quickly what I was looking at and I was told two to five years jail perhaps, uh, no amount of reassurance from anyone can, you know, fix that situation. That all, you, all I could think about was, so I'm going to jail, and how am I going to get through really? this? Yeah, you didn't, you didn't feel that I'm, 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 I'm operating here 
in accordance with the lawful instructions of my employer. There, there was no sense that, I mean, obviously there was a strong sense that you, what you had done journalistically was sound, uh, which we can talk about. You know, you were very, very satisfied that you'd satisfied yourself that you'd done all the research and that the story was sound. But the question was, he was, a, 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 you know, the, the federal police saying mm. you're in breach of this national security law. Yeah. That's very serious, of course, but you didn't feel the protection of your employer at that stage? Or, I felt, or you just knew that... I knew they would be there for me. Yeah. I knew I would have good lawyers. I knew... Um, I felt the general public would be supportive. I felt my colleagues in the press gallery would be supportive, but supportive is lovely. <laughs> uh, if you've broken a law according to the police and they could prosecute me, um, I didn't think that supportive would do much. And, and throughout this saga, I had politicians and other you know, supportive people suggest that they would shut down Parliament and march in the street should be, I'd be locked up. But as, love, as comforting as that is, it, it doesn't have any legal weight. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Did you ever have it explained to you, have you ever had it explained to you why you were not forewarned in any way and your employer was not forewarned? Because another raid happened shortly after the ABC, as as everyone knows, because the the two raids often get talked about in the same introduction. Um, That was in relation to different stories, but they happened on consecutive days, right? Um, But the ABC knew that the cops were coming. You didn't. Has that ever been explained? No, and I'd never been told they were investigating. Um, like, I'd, I'd been told it'd been referred to the police, mm. but that's a big difference between it's been referred and now we've decided to investigate. Well, you just assume it's gone away. Yeah, as you'd know, um, there's a lot of examples, a lot of social media examples recently, which people have alleged hacking. Different politicians or political candidates have alleged they've been hacked and the police say, well, look into it, and it quietly gets dropped a little bit later. Mm. And, um, I'd never been updated. So, uh, look... The ABC had to negotiate because they had to get passes to enter um, the ABC studios, but we were never informed at all. There was a third raid planned for News Corp on the third day, which never went ahead for whatever uh, whatever reason. Um, there's not been clarity around that, but um, there's a lot of questions too about why they didn't come to my workplace. And as you know, I work in Parliament House. Uh, should they have come to Parliament House, they would have had to seek approval from the president and the speaker and it's our 
assumption that that would have in some ways been giving a nod from the government and nobody wanted to put the government in that position. But it, it did seem strange that after a year, especially considering the sort of things they were alleging that I perhaps had put people at risk, that it took them a year to come to my house, that it was within a day of another raid uh, and that they didn't try and raid my office where I would have been and worked from and the computer I would have worked from, that they would come to my house, look through my bin from the last few days and my grill in my oven and, you know, my cookbook and my freezer. Like, you know, it did seem strange, yes, but I have no answers as to why. You say, the police opened an old folder where I kept shorthand notes from my journalism cadetship. It was one of many items I'd forgotten existed. I told them to leave it out so I could ditch it later once they'd gone. The raid had transformed into something of a law enforcement-style Murray Kondo experience. <laughs> I think it's quite funny. I mean, it certainly goes... It's true, though, but you know you live in a place for a while and you don't know what you have. Do you think, why have I kept that? Do you actually own things that you no longer know you have? This is a philosophical question. Not anymore. <laughs> I saw every item I owned pulled out and yeah. gone through with, you know, police with gloves on and sort of assessed. I now know everything in that house. I have also since moved, but I'd lived there for you five didn't, years. Just on that, you didn't stay in the house after that at all, did you? I was convinced, maybe I was paranoid, maybe I'm correct, that it was being surveilled, uh, whether through a bugging device or just uh, what a photographer that worked for News Corp was standing on my lawn. And, and during the day when it was my house was being raided, uh, some random person drove past and said, oh, so that's where Annika Smithhurst lives. And that was enough for me to go as a... Living here as a single female, I, I don't need to live here. Um, I went on a holiday shortly after and I was sitting in a pub in Singapore and footage of my house blasted on the TV. So I figured it was probably advisable to move camp as a small place. And you found all of that quite stressful, didn't you? Um, it was, uh, I think it was a very sort of solitary experience for you, the day itself and confronting, mm. as you say, the no one serves the time for you if you get convicted and sent to jail. So um, it, yeah. was a, it was a kind of a lonesome experience in that sense. And to the point where you, you didn't even like people expressing support for you. you. I mean, maybe that's a bit strong to say you didn't yeah. like it, but it was a constant reminder to you that you were in the middle of this potential I think, crisis. I think for so long I just wanted to get on with my life. And I fought it for so long. I just was so angry that this had happened. And I just wanted to be a press gallery reporter and not be recognised and not have to speak to lawyers every day and to not have to move house. And I felt like my life had no longer, I no longer got a choice in my life in so many aspects of what was going on. And that really angered me. And I guess I just kept thinking if I just go to work and I just keep writing stories, this will go away. And it, and it took me a few months to realise it wasn't going away. And if I don't speak on my behalf or for press freedom, you know, other people will and it's my story to tell. And I guess I reluctantly got there, but I, I really did fight it for a long time. And every time somebody mentioned it, I guess for a long time I didn't see it as support. I saw it as, again, another reminder it just of what I was going through. And every day it was like, I'm just trying to forget it. It's like, I'm just going to get up today. I'm going to walk my dog. I'm going to cook dinner and these little mundane tasks that somebody described it after you've had a a, a terrible grief or somebody you know has died. It's that going through the motions. If you just keep pretending, eventually you'll feel normal again. And I think at about the six-month mark, I realised that wasn't going to happen. Every time I turned on the television, someone was speaking on my behalf about press freedom, probably somebody that hadn't 
ever experienced it. And that angered me. Hmm. So then I thought, well, I may as well live up to this press freedom thing and, and start fighting for it because something good must come out of this. The whole thing actually rocked your faith in journalism uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of interesting aspects that I'd like to, uh, to, to probe just before we go to some, some questions that have come in uh, from, from viewers. But um, it, did, it did shake your confidence in whether this was the profession you wanted to stay in. That's correct. I still don't know the answer to that. I can't think of anything else I want to do. <laughs> so I think through process of elimination, you know, it's so tied to the person I am. I started writing for my local paper when I was still at school, when I was 14, 15. Uh, is yeah. that paper still there, by the way? That one is, but the one I started at after finishing uni, sadly, like a lot of country papers, has, is no longer. Um, you know, I was just telling someone the other day that the first paper I saw my own name in print in, which was actually a letter to the editor. That was, a, you know, my first entry as a kid. Um, that paper's gone, you know, it's, just in the last uh, round of, of closures. It's so, just terrible yeah. what is happening. And these papers were both in Bendigo and regional Victoria. One exists, one doesn't. So it's um, a huge loss. But I, it, journalism was such, so tied to me that I couldn't even imagine myself as what was I without this. So even now, I'd, I'd don't know. I definitely don't have the drive and the zest that I used to, and I'm finding a way to try and get that back. But as you know, you go into this, a lot of journalists, probably naively, because you think it's a noble cause, that you can hold powerful people to account. And I felt I had done the right thing by writing this story. I had exposed something that Australians needed to know, and I was going through this terrible thing, and nothing had changed. I hadn't stopped this from happening Everybody who proposed it was still there, and I just thought, well, what what is the point? Why do we do this? You know, I should I could go and do something else. Um, so something look, I'm not bit, quite something with a bit less stress. Absolutely. And my dad said to me at one stage, or my mum, I forget that. You know, why why didn't you? You could have done journalism, but why didn't you work for Vogue Living or you know the Good Weekend magazine or Stella magazine and just you know have a different sort of path in journalism, which wasn't perhaps going to result in me going to jail. And it's a fair assumption. It's a fair question, but I think the answer is because you want to do stuff that's important. You're interested in things that are important. You want to talk about things and write about things that are important. Yeah. And what could be more important than the business of government, you know, the uh, the contest of politics, the making yeah. of laws, and the maintenance of, you know, proper accountability. I mean, it's such a critical thing. Can I ask you about another aspect that you reference in the book, which is also about journalism? And, and that is you note that... Uh, Patricia Carvelis um, read out a text from Barnaby Joyce when she was sitting on the couch on Insiders. I think this was in relation to water buybacks. Um, you, you tell the story. I think I was actually on the couch with her that day, although it could, I, I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it was, um, you know, mm. that's my memory anyway. Um, but you raise that, uh, that example because you're using it to sort of illustrate a, a public disconnect between what journalism is and what some people at least think it ought to be. She was criticised for having had Barnaby had Joyce's number. phone number yeah. in <laughs> And you make the very valid point that, well, how do you think we talk to these people? How do you think we actually source information? How do we think we verify things that we hear? Well, we, you know, journalism yeah. is about going to the source. Yeah, and I think you and I laugh at that, but I think as journalists we've been terribly bad at just explaining to the public what we do. I, I don't blame them for not understanding, and a lot of people do understand, but I think a lot of the sort of the profession of a journalist and, and what we do day to day isn't necessarily understood, and that's to our detriment. And because of that, I think 
um, it makes it hard to garner support. And I say this because in my phone, I obviously had text messages and exchanges and phone calls and the phone numbers of um, possibly every politician in Parliament House at that time and prior ones, their staff. Um, I've worked at state parliament. So a lot of contact with a lot of people and they've trusted me. And and those contacts don't always lead to messages that you're all that happy to receive, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. you write a story and someone, someone's <laughs> angry about it. Yeah, and yeah it can go both know, ways. And yeah. I, I understand that some people assume this means there's some sort of club, you know, that we're, that we're getting information off politicians that they're telling us and that we have some sort of obligation to tweet or expose everything they send us. Now, I don't think that that's the case. Um, politicians are human. I am in a netball team with pollies who play journalists once a week. We have a text exchange. Uh, there is a footy tipping competition. You know, it is a workplace and we are professional enough or you should be able to to remove yourself from that when it comes to scrutinising policy or decision-making. Um, but I say that because not every text in the phone is newsworthy or relevant. And sometimes politicians wish to trust you with information um, and they give you information which might not be a story at the time but might lead to a story down the track. Now, I would prefer to build that relationship and that trust in order to tell a more important story than get one percenters and, and tweet the text messages I'm sending to somebody about the footy on the weekend because I saw them there or, you know, we go something like that. So I do understand that the difficult perception it has that we're just constantly meant to be on their backs and go in with a mindset of we're got to hold them to account. But I think that that mindset assumes that they're all bad all the time. Or that we don't have any professional ethics and can't make that distinction. I mean, it's it's amazing when you think about the criticism that comes to political interviewers for being too bolshy, for being too, you know, for Absolutely, trying to stop a politician yeah. from answering the same, with the same answer three times, even though it's been yeah. three separate questions. And, and then the interviewer gets criticised for it. But at the same time, there's this sort of criticism that it's all a bit of a club and, you know, everything's being sort of prearranged and... You know, the, and we the we're not telling the people public. something. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know too many journalists in the press gallery that should they get a good story, even if they, you know, lived next door to the poly or, or played in a cricket team with them once. And Canberra's a small place. You come across these people. And, um, you know, I don't think too many people I know would ever not write a story because they felt that, you know, they owed somebody something. Journos love a good yarn, and I still maintain I do. But I think... The point I make is I have text messages in that phone that didn't result in stories. Mm. I have had communications with politicians that have nothing to do with politics and all of that was on display um, to police, uh, which were secrets somebody had entrusted with me. And presumably you've had to burn people with stories, you know, people that you might have a reasonably working relationship with exchange of information with they'll tell the odd thing you you, the odd thing that's come out of party room or or whatever and then you you come across a story and you know they're not going to this doesn't work to their advantage and it's going to be difficult but you do it we've all done it in the press gallery and uh you know it's uh, it's It's not fun the next day when they text you and i think that assumption that people think it's always combative not only assumes that politicians are always doing the bad thing but that's the only type of reporting Mm. and it's not there is a whole the way the thing I like doing is writing about policy and, and hearing the tidbits and understanding why they're pushing this angle or why mm. someone wants that amendment or what they're willing to give up. And I think that's the interesting bit of politics. And you can't report on that and find those bits of information uh, unless people build a trust and a bond with you. So 
Why do you think journalism is so disrespected? Um, I'm going to put it to you that at least part of the story is, is our own fault, or at least the tendency in, in the media that, um, I mean, you quoted uh, William Randolph Hearst, uh, the, the, the sort of father of yellow journalism, had all those tabloids around the turn of the last century. Um, he, he, you quote uh, his, uh, his advice to editors, news is something which somebody wants suppressed. All the rest is advertising. And that's a very good quote for, you know, relevant to, to your situation. I mean, clearly this was something no one wanted uh, in the government wanted written about and you did. Um, but this, this issue of, um, of, of, of journalism itself, I mean, journalists spend a lot of time chipping each other. Media organisations, perhaps uh, even your company, spends a fair bit of time focusing on other media companies. There's a lot of that kind of criticism. Uh, and we see... Most uh, media empires have begun with people being outsiders and rebels and ended up with people being wealthy insiders who are protecting the system. Do you think that's actually part of the problem? I think it's... Journalists definitely have a part to play in in the disrespect. I don't think it explains it all, but explains some of it to misquote Julia Gillard there. It... There are so many issues that have led to, I guess, the current disrespect. I think the 24-hour news cycle has not helped, which leads to um, one-upmanship, chipping away, quick stories to get the hit as opposed to understanding uh, and delivering a news. The drive to be first, as you would know, in the press gallery is huge. We sort of go, they got it online seven minutes before. Now, the punter doesn't know that. Who cares? They don't know at all. They don't care about the scoop. They care about the story, whereas we are really driven by who broke that story first. Now, that's something that really only occupies our minds, and I think that that is a problem. I have no idea how to fix it. I think uh, at the risk of backing up politicians and blaming them for our troubles, I think the in recent years, the the disrespect that the way you hear some politicians speak about the media, the fake news, the idea that if they don't like a story that they attack an organisation or that they go after the person or that if they don't like one little bit of the story that therefore they can, you know, shape the whole narrative as they're against us and, and Trump is obviously a good example of that. But there are smaller examples where it happens here. I don't think that's helped. I think social media has ultimately been bad. There are some things that help, but it makes people very tribal. They therefore put every journalist I know, you know, in a, in a sort of silo. Now, mm-hmm. you would know a lot of people move between organisations. I've worked for the ABC. I've, I've worked for News Corp. You've worked for News oh, Corp. Well, you've, you've seen all the Twitter discussion about how many people on the insider's couch have been, you know, at News Corp, for example, as if this is some sort of, uh, you know, kind of um, this explains everything. Yeah, that uh, once you, you've worked there for five minutes, therefore, you know, you've been brainwashed or something to all think the same way. Now, as you would know, this everyone in the press gallery moves between different jobs a lot most few journalists in there have gone in and worked for the same organization yeah. the whole time and come out the other side so it doesn't it's like i was saying about you know having a working relationship with politicians it, it doesn't you know stop you being able to do your job and i think journalists also obviously have a lot to blame for this i think we're often judged by the worst of our profession uh, the image of a journalist is often that sort of paparazzi uh, chasing people down the street uh, crushing people's lives for the sake of a few headlines. Destroying people's lives, um, and, you know, death knocks, those sort of things. And there's a certain element that does that. But, you know, I've worked 
as a journalist for almost 15 years now, you've, you've worked in the industry for longer and you know that that's not, I, go, I think, indicative of the wider sort of um, reporting community. Now, we're getting quite long on time and I'm conscious that we do have some questions from uh, people who have sent them in and so we'll go to them. But just off the back of what you were saying, um, very quickly, did this experience give you an insight into what it is like to be the victim or the subject, yes. I should say, not really the victim, but the subject <laughs> of a lot of media attention? Yes. I mean, has it changed you as a journalist in that sense? I think I have a... I tried to look for the positives throughout this. And as I say, if the law changes because of this, then I see it as a positive. But one of the other strong sort of things I felt was um, I never hated any of the journalists for sitting outside my house. It's something I've done, so I have to accept that, or for ringing me on bad days and ringing me on good days, or for standing outside the court as I walked in, which was pretty horrendous. But it it showed me what it's like to be on the other side. I guess it gave me an empathy towards people that are going through it. And when you are a journalist, you usually speak to people at the best and the worst times mm. in their life. They're, they've become ministers, they're happy, they're, uh, they've won gold medals or, you know, they've been dumped from cabinet or, or lost the prime ministership or perhaps their house have burnt down. Mm. These are the sort of, um, we deal with people through massive passion and change in times in their lives. And uh, if it's good, it's great. Uh, but if it's not good, it's really rough. And I think having that insight to what it's like on the other side when your phone doesn't stop ringing and, and you turn on the radio and you're being spoken about and you're on the front page of the paper, it's it's horrendous. And you don't just worry for you, you worry about your family. So I think hopefully this has given me a better understanding of what it's like to be on the other side of that. Yeah. Now, here's a question from Siobhan. Do you think the show of force used against you by police was an attempt by the government to stop other investigative journalists reporting the ugly truth? I don't think it, it was about stopping journalists. I think any journalist that came across the story that I work with from any news organisation would write it. I think it was more about stopping whistleblowers. Uh, I think journos might be hesitant the way in which they write it and it might change their tactics slightly, but I still the people I work with at least would still go out, chase a strong yarn. We can't measure how many whistleblowers haven't come ahead, come forward in the past year. That's a very important detail. But I think that's, yeah. that's a bigger worry. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's a similar question from Sam. Uh, asks, do you believe the raid on the on your property and the raids in the ABC offices were about the regarding the Afghan files? Has there been a, deli- a decline in investigative journalism into government actions due to fear of repercussions from journalists? So I suppose it's covering... Some of the same. Again, it's hard mm. to measure, but I know other senior journalists, uh, one particularly at Fairfax, had said that at least some people who she had spoken to as contacts prior to the raids on myself and the ABC had cited it as a reason why they were scared. I know it definitely uh, meant my phone, call, my phone stopped ringing for a little bit, and I think it at least it's said to chill through the public service, I think, of what could come if you speak to journalists. Question from Georgia. Do you think civil liberties such as privacy and the public's right to know can be protected while the Journalist Information Warrant Scheme in telecommunications operates as it currently does? That's a huge question. Um, I don't think it can be answered that simply. Look, I think at the very heart of it, there needs to be better protections for journalists. There needs to be a, a public right to know within that and, and there was some small changes recently with defamation in New South Wales that came out of the Attorney General's meeting about having some sort of one a protection but two a, a reflection of not just lumping all stories into one and, and understanding that you know the Im- 
the public's right to know is important and that that should be considered in all these sort of cases. Okay, this one's from Victor. What advice do you have for students wanting to embark <laughs> on a career in journalism? Oh, it's terrible. I, I will quote somebody. I asked Julia Banks, who had a bit of a rough time in politics when she left, uh, would she advise a woman to go into politics? And she said, don't ask me now. I feel like somebody that's come out of a divorce and you're asking if I believe in marriage. You know, at the moment I'd say, don't, you're an idiot. Why would you do it? But give me a few years and I'll believe in love again. And I, I, at the time I thought I really felt that. And I, I sort of feel the same. You know, I felt really miserable about the profession and the industry for a while. But it's given me so much joy. You know what it's like. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful career. It's changing. I don't think you can expect to sort of have the same sort of careers people had 20 years ago. Newspapers are changing. I wouldn't say don't do it. I think it's just going to have a different shape and a different form. And it's going to feel more precarious for a good many people, I suspect. It's not going to have the, the same stability that it had, as you were just touching on there. Yeah. Um, this is a question from Erin. How do you think the raids affected public trust in government generally? Interesting question. Yeah, there was a lot uh, sort of suggested that the, the public wasn't behind the right to know campaign and didn't really care about press freedom. And I think there's some merit that it's hard to get the public revved up about press freedom. That doesn't mean I think the public were on the government side. And something I really noticed was the emails I received, the people that stopped me in the street uh, from all sides of politics, people identifying themselves as Liberal voters, as Conservatives, as Labor voters, as Greens voters who stopped me and said, what happened to you was wrong. Now, they might not be out in the street marching for press freedom, mm. but I think the government underestimated how much this would hurt. And you can tell by the language the days after my raid, Scott Morrison was in London meeting the Queen and I think he was a bit put off having to answer questions about the the raid on my house and the ABC and he was quite bolshy. He said, it never upsets me when the law's being upheld. Over six months that changed. Um, Christian Porter said he didn't want to see journalists' house being raided and I think they started to understand that it was a reflection on them. Um, John Howard was Prime Minister when uh, two other former Herald Sun journalists went through a, a similar thing and I was told privately that he was very unhappy that this was happening under his government because I think he understood that uh, the onus was on them, that they were overseeing this. Mm. This is a question from Martin. Do you feel that journalistic focus on the impact of national security laws to journalists, do you feel that the journalistic focus on the impact of national security laws to journalists instead of framing it as an issue for all Australians has aided and abetted the national security enforcement creep that you personally experienced? I think we all could have spoken up more. Having said that, as you would know, during metadata laws and all of this, there was, yes, we did focus on, on the issue around journalists. Um, I don't think that was meant we didn't focus on the general public. I guess I see it that it's... A lot of people think that, well, if I'm doing nothing wrong, then it doesn't matter. You know, I don't mind... Which that, was your attitude when you were in, not, had that knock on the door? It was a lot of people... A lot of people feel this with national security. Well, I don't feel... I don't mind giving up a bit of a civil liberty if it keeps us safe and I've got nothing to hide. So I think using journalists as an example when we wrote about these laws, and, and I guess is a more practical way to explain it. Um, I can't... I can't understand why people aren't worried about giving up freedoms. But I guess, like me, it's not until it backfires that you really understand what you're giving up. Mm. And the way the government frame it, you know, we've had more than 60 laws since September 11, laws and amendments come in, more than any Western democracy. And the government say, well, we've kept you safe. And it's a pretty strong argument. They have. 
But I think whenever we give up a liberty, we need to have the flip side of that. We need to have it explained to us why. And Roman Quadvillig writes about this in his book, and I think it's really interesting that people in law enforcement feel that way. Rory asks, what are your thoughts about News Corp and Nine newspapers studiously ignoring or not covering the secret trials of Bernard Caleri and Witness K and indeed Witness J? I'd ask you about that as a, a former employee of both, but uh, well, they're, they're I, I, secret. I, don't, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> uh, they're secret, uh, I think. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, and yeah. they have been covered as much as they they can be, um, but that is the big problem. It's not our fault they're secret. I think, you know, that's, that is an issue for the Attorney General. Final one from me. Um, I, I've always found the statement, uh, you know, journalists shouldn't be put in jail just for doing their jobs or, um, you know, th- those kinds of statements. I've always find that pretty underwhelming. It doesn't strike me as a particularly mm. strong argument. I mean, a, a logger who cleared a section of National Forest could be said to be just doing the job, but it's or still a, a tragedy. Or a that inadvertently yeah. kills somebody. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think a better argument needs to be put forward, and it's the sort of arguments you're putting forward. Really, we need to be saying, no, actually, functioning democracies need to have robust, independent, free presses, and they need to have laws that absolutely guarantee that that is the case, because the state will always try and yes. shut down those levels of accountability. Will always try and do yeah. it, and you have to resist it. I think that's that's exactly the point you make is is correct, and I feel the same about it. I think people start to think, well, journalists are above the law. Mm. Now, there are countless examples of where the law is actually carved out for different professions. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's an issue. But I think when we try and prosecute that argument, especially where how people feel about journalists at the moment, we're going to lose that battle. I think it's far better to explain to people why we need a functioning press, what that can deliver for them, what service they can get from that. Uh, and, and that's where we need to sort of gain momentum and support. Yeah. Good. I agree. Annika, thanks so much for writing this book and for uh, writing the original article, indeed, that, uh, that led to your travails and for displaying the courage and the integrity that's been necessary through this whole process, because I think uh, those of us in the profession, uh, your colleagues, have watched with great admiration as you've, as you've gone through this process. And as you say, it may have shaken your faith in in the profession, um, but I don't think that's it, that it will have shaken your faith in the solidarity of your colleagues through that, that period, I would mm-hmm. hope. Um, so thank you so much for that. Uh, and that really closes us for today. I'm Mark Kenny. You've been watching, uh, or indeed listening, if you're listening to Democracy Sausage, because I'm hoping that this will go out as a podcast after that, to a special ANU Canberra Times Meet the, Pre- meet the Author, I should say Meet the Press, <laughs> Meet the Author chat with Annika Smithhurst, the latest author of Hachette's Little Big Ideas Little Books, Big Ideas series titled On Secrets. Thanks for listening and thanks also to Emeritus Professor Colin Steele who edits the very popular Meet the Author author series for ANU. That's us. Uh, Goodbye for now. Thank you, Annika. Thank you, Mark. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.